Welcome to this podcast from My HR Toolkit, the HR software platform for small businesses. In this episode based on a webinar, we speak to HR advisor Wendy Creswell from Howards about following a fair dismissal process. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes when they're released and check out our business webinars and guides on myhrtoolkit.com. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bob Teasdale. I'm the Customer Engagement Director here at MyHR Toolkit. We've been running a, uh, a few sessions recently on uh, things that impact SMEs on different HR and business topics. And today's area is uh, dismissals. No one likes doing them. And frankly, even less people want to do, like doing them or want to do them. Uh, but from time to time, they are necessary. And in some cases, actually the best thing for the employee themselves so what's important is if we do have to do them that we're fair that we do them right and the business benefits hopefully at the end of today's uh, session we'll have time for some questions today's session is providing general hr advice and in no way should it be construed as uh, legal advice i'm very pleased to welcome a, a hr specialist from our friends at howards uh, specialist HR and employment law business in West Yorkshire. Uh, I'd like to welcome Wendy Creswell. Wendy, good morning. Good morning, Bob. Um, welcome, everyone, and uh, thank you, Bob, for the introduction there. My name's Wendy Creswell. I've worked for Howarths as an HR and employment law advisor since October 2018. I'm level seven HRM qualified, and I've got over six years' experience in HR and employment law. At Howards, we give advice and support to SME businesses from various industries, both from the public and private sectors, and that's on all aspects of HR and employment law. But we also provide on-site support as well. So that's a bit about me and about Howards. Um, as Bob said, today's webinar is about dismissal. Um, I'm going to talk about both fair and unfair dismissal. So the areas I'm going to be covering today are the fair reasons for dismissal, automatically unfair dismissal. I'm going to navigate you through a tribunal claim. We're going to talk about discrimination, constructive dismissal and breach of contract. One bit around subject access requests and also about probationary periods. So at the end of the webinar, I'll also have a couple of uh, case studies to share with you as well. So I thought a good place to start was to talk about what constitutes fair dismissal. For a dismissal to be fair, the employer has to show that the employee was dismissed for one of the following five permitted reasons. These are capability, conduct, redundancy, statutory illegality, and some other substantial reason. So if we start by looking at capability, it falls into three categories. Um, that is qualifications, poor performance and ill health. Conduct issues range from failure to follow lawful instructions to engaging in activities outside the workplace that damage the employment relationship. An employee can dismiss in misconduct cases even if the reason does not amount to gross misconduct but is obliged to give notice and follow a, a procedure including warnings which fare overall. For example, if you were dealing with a, a minor first offence of misconduct, 
it's most likely that a reasonable warning would be a first written warning and it could be seen as unreasonable to go straight to a final written warning for a first offence, unless you can substantiate the seriousness and you can evidence it was reasonable under the circumstances. Where there's been gross misconduct, no notice needs to be given, but a fair procedure must be followed. Redundancy dismissals may be unfair where there's a failure to follow an appropriate procedure. This could be because the employees failed to adequately consult with the employee, has followed an unfair selection procedure or has failed to consider alternative employment. Statutory illegality occurs if the employee could not continue working in the position without contravening a duty or restriction. So for example, that might be something like a bus driver who loses his or her driving license and cannot continue to drive. However, in such a case, an employer might be required to consider whether there's any reasonable alternative non-driving work that could be offered for the duration of the driving ban. Some other, some other substantial reason is a catch-all category, which provides a potentially fair reason for dismissal where the circumstances cannot be classed as one of the other potentially fair reasons. So the following could amount to an SOSR dismissal, the dismissal of a person employed as a, on a temporary replacement, the dismissal of an employee who's been imprisoned, dismissal resulting from the employer losing trust and confidence in the employee because of something that they've, they've done outside the workplace. If an employer can show that the dismissal was for one of the fair reasons, whether or not it was fair or unfair depends on whether the employee acted reasonably or unreasonably in treating the reason as sufficient for dismissing the employee. A tribunal will take the size and admin resources of the employee into account and depending on the circumstances, factors could be relevant and this would include things like whether the ACAS code had been followed. So in cases of unfair dismissal, awards can be uplifted by 25% if the code has not been followed. They also take into account the length of service. So if you've got an employee who's got a number of years service and the, the conduct was out of character, for example, it'd be more reasonable to be a little bit more lenient. They'd also take into account the reasonableness and thoroughness of any investigation. You know, one thing you need to evidence is that it's not just one sided against the employee and that facts have been gathered to support their defence as well. They'd look at the extent to which the employee was warned and given the opportunity to improve. The extent to which the employee was given the opportunity to give his or her version of events before a decision was um, to dismiss was taken. Consistency of treatment with other employees. For example, someone who's committed the same offence previously and has had no warning, but then you give somebody a final written for exactly the same thing um, could be seen as unfair. And lastly, whether the employee was considered for other roles within the organisation. The employee's actions will be judged on the basis of information that was available to it at the time. We talked earlier about exceptions to the rule. We're going to now talk about automatically unfair dismissal. If the dismissal is for one of the automatically unfair reasons, no qualifying service is required to bring a claim. And these would be things like taking action on health and safety grounds, asserting statutory rights, reasons related to pregnancy or maternity leave, refusal to work over 48 hours a week under the working time regs, making a protected disclosure, so that's whistleblowing, 
or making a flexible working request. Okay, so we're just going to go on to talk about um, tribunal claims now. Um, so a likely time frame from start to finish for a tribunal claim may fall between six and 18 months. If any employee wants to make a claim to a tribunal, they have to firstly inform ACAS of their claim within a statutory timescale. That's normally within three months of the dismissal, but it does vary um, depending on the claim. And ACAS can assist in settling, um, seeking settlement for up to six weeks. How long ACAS assist in seeking settlement would depend on how willing the parties are to negotiate. If the employee does agree to settle and no claim is issued to the tribunal, it doesn't settle, the claimant will then have to lodge their claim form with the tribunal within the relevant timescales. Again, it can vary. How a tribunal case is navigated depends on the type of claim being made. Every case is dealt with based on the specific needs of that matter, taking into consideration not just the legal claims, but also the parties involved. There are some steps, though, that will be common to virtually all tribunal cases, and the following would have to happen in order to fully prepare the case for a hearing. Claim form is issued to the tribunal by the claimant. The respondent has 28 days to lodge their defence. The claimant will provide a schedule of loss outlining the compensation they're seeking and how it's calculated. Each party will provide the other with copies of documents they hold so that both sides have sight of the documentary evidence. This is called disclosure and both parties are under duty to carry out a reasonable search and disclose all documents that are relevant to the claim, whether they support their case or not. A joint bundle of documents has to be prepared, which is a file containing every document that will be referred to at the hearing. It often falls to the respondent to prepare the bundle because of the availability of resources, but that's not a given. Every witness will, will give evidence at a hearing, must provide a written statement containing all their main evidence. Each witness will prepare their statement and then usually at the same time, the parties will swap statements. This is called statement exchange. And the purpose is to ensure that both sides know what the main witness evidence is going to be ahead of the hearing. The witness statement will be read at the hearing and taken as the witness's main evidence. The hearing will take place at the tribunal and the judge will make a decision on the claims. Parties don't have to be represented by a lawyer at the tribunal hearing and can represent themselves. It's not uncommon for claimants to represent themselves rather than have a solicitor or a barrister present because of the cost. Um, just looking at um, the types of awards as well for unfair dismissal. Um, compensation has two types of award. There's the basic award, which is the same as a statutory redundancy payment, and a compensatory award, which is capped at the lower of one year's salary or 80, just over 88,000. A compensatory award can vary from case to case as there are many different factors uh, how they calculate compensation and a number of ways that compensation can be reduced. Just going to talk a little bit about discrimination. So the Equality Act 2010 provides protection against unlawful discrimination, harassment and victimisation for the protected characters listed, which are age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, 
pregnancy and maternity, race, religion and belief, sex and sexual orientation. Where someone believes they've been dismissed because of a protected characteristic, may give rise to a discrimination claim. And it can in some cases also be automatically unfair um, if it's for the reason I discussed earlier. And either claim can be made irrespective of length of service. Okay, so we're just going to go on now to um, talk a bit about breach of contract and constructive dismissal. When could a, an employee claim a breach of contract through the dismissal process? Well, irrespective of length of service, the company's policies are contractual and you don't follow a process when looking to dismiss, then if they've got under two years service, they can't claim ordinary unfair dismissal, but would put in a breach of contract claim for failure to follow such contractual procedures. A constructive dismissal occurs where the employee resigns in response to conduct by the employer that amounts to a repudiatory breach of contract. So this would be something like um, enforcing changes of terms and conditions without getting consent from the employee. Um, but to make a successful constructive dismissal claim, they must have over two years service. The next point I just wanted to make isn't directly linked to unfair dismissal, but is something to consider. Um, complications may arise if you look to dismiss somebody without following a process, um, feel unfairly treated, you've got a disgruntled ex-employee out there to seek revenge. Um, and they may decide to put in a subject access request. This in itself is a timely exercise. So irrespective of length of service, um, just to avoid such unnecessary resource, we always say it's just best to fill up the process. I think as well on another point, um, we've also got the fact that social media is out there. You think about Indeed where employees can put comments on about their employers um, and this can obviously have a detrimental impact on business reputation. So again, at Howarth, we'd always say follow a process irrespective of length of service. Right. So um, it's common to have probationary periods in your contracts because it allows some flexibility to dismiss somebody who's not working out in those first early months. You are looking to dismiss somebody within a probationary period. It's a lot more flexible than when the probation is, is completed successfully. However, again, considering whether procedures are contractual, there's still a risk of a breach of contract claim. So you should always be confident of your obligations. Um, not only that, from April last year, employees have to set out any specific terms that they want applied during the probationary period. For example, um, different or earlier termination. Otherwise, this again could give rise to a breach contract claim. Where procedures are non-contractual, you, you have choices on how you deal with performance and conduct within a probationary period. From an, from an extreme best practice point of view, we'd always suggest that if you're considering dismissal, um, actually do it face-to-face -face in a probation review setting, discuss your concerns and allow the employee to respond. The main point really is trying to establish whether it is conduct or capability. And it will be a choice whether you allowed somebody to be accompanied 
Um, also, whether you invited them to a review in writing or just bring them into a meeting. From a capability point of view, you'd have two options, really. You'd look at whether you wanted to extend the probation, and give the employee the opportunity to improve. Um, for example, putting a performance improvement plan in place. Um, and we'd say that that would be advisable. Um, but you should also make sure that you've got the pr provision to extend the probation in the contract. Otherwise, it could be a breach. And also, how long you're going to extend for. It would be reasonable um, to suggest an extension for around three months. The alternative to that would be you could dis dismiss on the grounds of failed probation. Um, and that can be done at any point during the probation period. When deciding on any, any action on the back of the review, again, you can meet face to face or just write out with an outcome. If you are looking to dismiss, would it be fair to offer the right to appeal like you would do um, when somebody's got over two years service? Um, I mean, that would be your choice. It can actually be useful. It gives you an opportunity to see what line of attack the employee might be considering um, and to rule out any risks at all. From a conduct perspective, you should consider whether you follow a disciplinary process or not during probation. Of course, you can look to dismiss without following a process, Becky disciplinary policy. Um, some people do have um, disciplinary policies that are contractual and look at any clauses in the contract that may um, mean that you, you could be at risk of breach of contract if you don't follow a procedure. Another point to consider is, would, would it be fair really to dismiss somebody at least without having an investigation fact-find meeting? Because it could be that there are mitigating circumstances. Once someone has completed the probation and passed, still got under two years service, you can no longer rely on the flexibility of terminating for failed probation. Yes, you can still decide not to follow a process. Um, if the processes are in fact non-contractual. Someone cannot claim ordinary unfair dismissal with under two years service. However, the risk of discrimination could still be there. In conduct cases, we would always advise to follow the process in line with ACAS best practice, which in essence is a thorough and fair investigation, the right to 48 hours notice for a hearing, and the right to be accompanied at any formal hearing and the right to appeal. The code also outlines impartiality during each stage of a disciplinary process. For example, it would go up in seniority with a different person at each stage. Um, so you might have a line manager conducting the investigation, um, a more senior manager chairing the disciplinary and, and so on for the appeal. So irrespective of whether someone is in the probationary period or still under two years, employees have the right to be given a written reason for their dismissal, irrespective of whether a process has been followed or not, so as not to risk a breach of contract. If someone does appeal and it's successful and it results in a reinstatement, it may give them continuous service because if following their reinstatement, the employee chooses to resign, because of the original dismissal, this could tip them over the two-year mark with the bit with the ability to bring it in a claim for constructive unfair dismissal. 
Okay, well, we're nearly at the end now. Um, I've just got a couple of case studies um, to go through with you, and then we can maybe go through some questions. Um, so the first example was a recruitment consultancy manager. It was summarily dismissed for gross misconduct just two days before that had two years continuous service needing to bring a claim for unfair dismissal. The employee did not follow a disciplinary policy and the employee was not given the right to appeal. The employee claimed unfair dismissal. The tribunal had to decide if they had two years continuity of service needing to bring the claim. Employees can normally add on the statutory minimum period of notice to the effective date of termination if the employee is not given them the proper period of notice. The tribunal said that they should have had one week statutory notice. The unfair dismissal claim could proceed and that the employer had acted unreasonably. The employer failed to investigate the alleged misconduct and follow a proper procedure before the dismissal. Okay, the other example is um, an employee was dismissed in a letter which was sent by special delivery and signed for by her son. Um, it gives a date, it's probably irrelevant, but 30th of November 2006. She had been expecting the letter to arrive, but she'd had to go away for a few days because her sister was giving birth. She did not open the letter and find out about the decision until the 4th of December. She brought a claim for unfair dismissal on the 2nd of March the following year. Um, if the effective dismissal date was the 30th of November, a claim would have been out of time. But if it was the 4th of December, it would have been within the statutory timescale. The Supreme Court held that the effective dismissal date was the 4th of December when the employee opened the letter. She should not be criticised for, for letting her letter stay at home unopened instead of getting a son to open it and read it to her as a contents were private. She had not deliberately failed to open the letter or gone away to avoid reading it. And therefore, the dismissal date should be the 4th of December when she found out about the decision. The Supreme Court also held that on policy grounds, it was desirable to favour the employee in interpreting time limit provisions and that the strict contractual law concerning concerning contract termination should not displace the statutory framework. Okay, sorry, a lot of information to take in there. We're at the end of the webinar now. I hope everybody's found it useful. I'm gonna pass back over to Bob um, and we can look at any questions that, that have come through that um, I can answer hopefully. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Wendy. We, uh, we have indeed had uh, quite a few questions, Let's, let's launch straight into them. Um, first one's from Abby. She was out of the blocks just after you started talking, so uh, oh. you, must have, you must have hit the mark. We recently had a member of staff become aggressive to their manager, shouting and screaming down the phone. After it happened, the employee was signed off sick for three weeks and has returned. Where do we stand? If we're looking at a conduct issue... Again, talking about following a process, the first thing to do is a fact find. So if they've returned back from work, and I don't know whether any return to work meetings been done on the back of the absence, if it hasn't, I'd certainly do a return to work meeting and then I'd, I'd cause the, um, the conduct issue to them. 
um, fact-finding meeting, you don't have to give somebody notice, you don't have to put it in writing, and they don't have the right to be accompanied. So I would be speaking to them about the way they spoke to the line manager on the phone and give them the opportunity to respond. I'd have somebody in taking notes, because if it were to go to a disciplinary, those notes from that meeting would be used as evidence. And really, it depends on the responses, but it does sound as though it would be a misconduct issue um, and it would follow a formal disciplinary process. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Nikki asks, with regards to performance, is there a set amount of time the employer has to be employed by, e.g. four weeks? So I'm presuming... That means a performance dismissal, I think. Okay, I mean... I suppose it will depend on the circumstance. If if somebody has been, um, maybe they're clearly not right for that role or they've been given support and training and they're just not getting it. There is certainly no limit. Um, as I said, the flexibility is there during that probationary period. So you can dismiss at any time. I think it's more from a fairness point of view. So would you really be looking at dismissing somebody after four weeks because of performance? I think you've got to look at whether you've given them enough opportunity, you've given them enough support, and they've had adequate training. Okay, thank you. Laura asks us, in a redundancy situation, is alternative employment only the open vacancies you have? Or can someone claim, based on the fact that you didn't bump an employee from another team, are you bound to find the redundant employer role, even if there are no vacancies? Okay, so you don't have to make up a role. It would be, it's basically reasonable alternative employment. If you could find them something and it was appropriate, otherwise it would be what is vacant at the time. But you're under an obligation to make sure you've at least explored all avenues before you look to make somebody uh, redundant. Right. So you're not you're not obliged to make up a job, but you've got to no. be pretty sure that you've yeah. had a good look. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Joe says, can you explain a bit about probation terms from April 2020? Okay, so under the new legislation, for example, there are things like explaining what will happen when their probation period ends, that you will put something in writing to them. There's not absolutely loads of content, but you have to be absolutely clear about how long you would extend a period of probation for, the fact that you have got the, um, the right to terminate within that probationary period. Um, there is a bit around training as well within a probationary period and what we would be expected to get. Um, and also, if after their probation is completed, what benefits they would be provided with. Okay, thank you. Very sort of topical question here from Nick, eh? With the current situation of working from home, would you always have to set up a Zoom to complete the normal formality of review or any other conduct? No, not necessarily. I mean, obviously, we're in the climate that we're in at the moment. You know, and before the whole pandemic, we would have always said, 
any type of meeting should be face to face. We know that's not possible because the government are saying if you can work from home, work from home. So the, the next best option would be a video call. But we know that some employees might not have the technology. If it had to be a call, it had to be a call, but obviously not an ideal situation under those circumstances. I think you've got to look at what's available for you, depending on the situation. Yeah, we're all adapting. Yeah. Jane asks us, what would your advice be in relation to an employee who is recovering from a mental health illness? Hmm. Are concerns with the employer on the grounds of capability and not being able to meet the reduced targets given? We've provided counselling, reduced workload and gradual return to work. What would your advice be on the next steps? Okay, I mean, this could be a a formal capability situation, but what we've got to remember is depending on the person's condition, it could be defined as a disability. It sounds as though there are some reasonable adjustments that have been made, and that's an obligation on the employer. But if we were looking at going down a capability room, then you would need to be able to evidence that you've sought medical advice. My advice on this one would be to get an occupational health referral done because an OH advisor would ultimately focus on the role and what adjustments can be put in place and advice on whether they are actually going to be capable of doing that role for the foreseeable future. Once you've got that evidence and you've spoken to the employee, if there is nothing else that can be done and they're still not able to do the role, then ultimately it would be a formal capability and it could result in dismissal. Hopefully that was useful, Jane. Tracy says, I'll read it. She says, hi, sorry, I missed the right to appeal. Regarding the right to appeal on the probationary period, is this best to be put in the contracts such that they have no right to appeal prior to passing probation? It's a funny thing, but what you don't want to be doing is overloading the contracts. That would be better in probably a uh, in the handbook somewhere, if that was the case. But ultimately, you're under no obligation to give them the right to appeal in a probation period. So it's probably um, not something that you need to even consider. Um, I think my point on that was that it can be useful to give them the right to appeal because if there's something that wasn't disclosed in the review meeting that could amount to discrimination, at least you get a bit of an angle on whether the employee's thinking about seeking anything and, and closing down those lines of attack at that stage. Okay, thank you. A few more questions. Andrea asks, if someone has signed a contract for an offer of employment but never actually started employment on the agreed date and has given lots of different excuses why they're not starting. The company then makes a decision to withdraw the offer. The person isn't happy as they now want to start the role. Do they have a right to ask the company for a notice period pay, even though they never actually started? Well, they could put in a claim. The the most they would get would be the statutory notice. So my advice would be if you want to withdraw it to avoid any such a claim, then yeah, it may be a week's pay um, because that's really all they can claim at that stage. 
So if somebody doesn't start on the on the date, the start date on a contract isn't quite as binding as you might think. It's not take it or leave it. It's well, the, I mean, as soon as you enter into a contract, there is a contract there. So you know, once you've put that contract in place, I'm not sure why. I probably need a bit more information about that. Um, maybe that's a separate conversation. Maybe follow up with an email to me just so yeah. I can understand that a little bit better. I don't think I've got enough background on okay. that one. I'm afraid. Andrew, if you want to, uh, there you have it. If you want to drop me a line at uh, get in touch with my HR toolkit, I'll put you in touch with Wendy and you can explore that a little bit more with you. I'm really interested myself. I say I, I had an employee who prevaricated and prevaricated and in the end they didn't start, but it was there was more to it than that. Yeah. So yeah. get in touch, Andrew, and we'll, uh, we'll connect you up. On the right to appeal, and around the right to appeal question, after the probationary period, is the right to appeal automatic in all of the situations? Okay, so for best practice, it would be if you looked at the ACAS code best practice and you need to check your policies as well to see if it was in there, for example, in your disciplinary policy. But from the point of view of a fair process, when we talk about a dismissal case, then if, it, if they've got under two years service, and you don't give them the right to appeal because they still can't claim ordinary unfair dismissal. I think it's more from a best practice point of view and fairness, really, just to see if there is anything that's been missed that you maybe need to consider. Okay, thank you. If an employee is not entitled to bring someone with them to a meeting, but they request this, do we have to allow it? I think this would be an investigation meeting because that would be the only point where they didn't have the right to be accompanied. Up to you, really, because, yes, you're not under any obligation to allow them and they're only allowed to bring a trade union representative or, or a work colleague. But to be honest, it depends on the circumstances. I've allowed people's spouses to um, be there as a, as a companion. And that was probably in a, a long-term absence case uh, where somebody had a, a mental illness. And I think it's good practice to allow them. You've just got to remember what they're there for. And if they do get disruptive, you probably need to adjourn to have that conversation with them. But it's always good practice to allow them if they do ask. I want to squeeze a personal question in here with oh, regard to the, the going back a while. But if somebody wants to be accompanied by a trade union official, do they have to be a member of that union? I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, anybody can join a union. You do have to be a member. I'm, I'm sure you do for them to accompany you. It resolves the problem I had about 10 years ago. I've just been dying to know. <laughs> it's a bit late. Better late than never. OK. Um, Nikki asks. What happens if the employee has started a role and progressed further up the ladder, but has never had a contract put in place, but he's now over the two years of employment? Where does that leave the employee? Okay, I mean, whether there's a contract in place or not, and, and there is a legal obligation to provide that within two months, if they're working towards more implied terms, then there is that contract in place. But I would certainly suggest get a contract drawing up. I mean, the new... Um, legislation that came into place last year it's still in terms of having to provide a contract within two months but you have to provide what they call a section one statement from day one the only risks really are that if they were to make any other claim because you 
can't make a claim about not having a contract on its own. But if they were looking at making another claim, say constructive dismissal, um, it would also get an uplift if they'd never had a contract. Nate asks, can you please clarify what role the additional person joining the person, the companion in a meeting can and can't do? What they're there for? Okay. Well, the main thing is they can't ask questions. They can't answer questions for the employee. So they're there to refer with them. Um, and as long as the employee's happy, they can ask questions during any formal hearing. They just can't answer for the employee. Right. Moral support. Yeah. Tracy asks, should return to work interviews be conducted after every absence? Or are there guidelines as to when it should take place, a specific length or an amount of time off or something like that? Yeah, there are no guidelines, really. It's up to yourselves how you want to run them. I suppose if you look at it, if, if somebody's uh, been into work and gone home feeling ill and then you do a return to work, that could seem as excessive. Um, but return to work are a good way of highlighting any concerns you've got with employees because, it's, because you're monitoring the absences. If you've got triggers in place, a further absence at a return to work meeting might be saying, look, you know, you've hit a trigger now. We're going to have to go down a process. Um, but as I said, there are, no, there are no right and wrongs that it depends on what you want to do. I would do one after every absence. Okay. I suppose it, whatever, whatever fits for your business. Yeah. Dola asks, would it be unfair to dismiss based on underperformance if an employee is still within the standard six months probationary period? No. Um, I mean, obviously, I'd be, I'd be asking the question as to um, whether um, it's been highlighted to them what the performance issues are and they've been allowed to give a response um, and that any support or training has been put in place. As I say, you've got that flexibility during a probation period to dismiss if you want, but it's more from an ethical point of view, I would say that my advice would be at least give them an opportunity to try to improve before you make that decision. Uh, say asks us, an employee, this is very, very topical, an employee has failed to disclose a COVID test result. However, they are also on probation and only recently started. Despite numerous attempts of trying to contact them, which has proved unsuccessful. Are we within our rights to dismiss or would it be better to follow a fair procedure? If they're absent at the moment and you've not been able to get in touch, I think from a, a duty of care perspective, I'll be trying to get hold of the next of kin first just to make sure there mm. isn't any, any issues, um, especially if they've just had a COVID test. And it would depend on the reason why they've not been in, but ultimately unauthorised absence can constitute gross misconduct. But again, if they're in a probation, as long as any absence isn't linked to something that could be seen as a disability, then it would still be safe to um, dismiss. You just need to put it in writing. There you have it. Thank you. Two final questions, and one of them's my fault. I've opened a can of worms. Debbie says, <laughs> how do you establish an if employee is a member of a trade union? If a mm. union rep is prepared to represent them, is that presumed membership? Well, in my experience, it's not. 
it's recruiting for the union. That's what it was in my case. But yeah, and the and, and and the thing is, you know, we we think back um, to Thatcher days. You know, it was the dumb thing that you were in a union and it was recognised within the organisation, and it's not now. And one of their main points is trying to recruit people to join their union, and it's a it's a private agreement. You know that that they pay for as like a direct debit so unless you ask them you probably wouldn't know and unless you know if you don't recognize your unions i mean a lot of the public sectors education now they recognize unions anyway and they work very closely with them but not many private organizations do okay so it's quite a difficult one you ask mm. them really well I, must... uh, I mean in a lot of our standard letters that we send out when we're inviting somebody to a, a disciplinary we'd actually put in there um, you've got the right to be accompanied by a trade union rep and ask them to let us know in advance who that companion would be. So then at least you know whether it is going to be a union rep. And I'd certainly ask to see their ID as well when they are present and make that's, sure that they are recognised. That's a good point. Saying in, in, my, in a previous life, we permitted union reps to be a companion even when they weren't necessarily a member. Yeah, and in honest, on all honesty and balance, the union rep probably helped us more than it did the employee. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. because they knew what a fair process was. Um, okay, last question from David: If I have to choose between two people, similar skills, length of service, performance, two very similar people, for redundancy due to a required cost saving, how should I, could I evidence I've made a fair choice? Okay. Um, it sounds to me that, um, and, and again, I don't know the ins and outs, but when when you're in a redundancy situation, it's about the role, not the person. So it's if the role is being made redundant. So if you've got two people that are doing the same role, you have to go through a selection process and your selection will be based on things like skills, performance, and you've got to follow a set of fair selection process and be able to evidence your scoring. Um, and that is actually shared with the employee as part of the consultation period. So as I say, I don't know enough about this situation um, and whether they are doing the same role, but you would need to somehow evidence. So if it's based on performance it could be appraisal documentation one-to-one reviews things like that and any other sort of data that you might have on terms of quality it's going to be difficult yeah <laughs> someone's managed has managed to slip one question under my radar that's after i'll do this one then no more <laughs> um it's like i'm auditioning for question time here i was um, gonna say it's really good is this i've not, I've not been used to doing a webinar with so many questions so thank you everyone i think this is in relation to where you dismiss somebody for underperformance during the six-month probationary period it was a question we took a short while ago where you were told you know you'd, you'd review it you'd perhaps give them a chance to get better in that situation would it be justified to have a salary review possible salary reduction during that review period. So someone's in the probation, they're not doing it very well. You're thinking of dismissing them. You say, look, we'll give you a few weeks to get better. Can you pay them less? And you've, we've given you a month to improve, but you're not delivering what we wanted. So we're going to pay you a bit less until you prove yourself. Well, the answer is no without consent from the employee because it's a change to terms and conditions. 
So if you and, and, and also you've got a risk of an unlawful deductions claim as well. So if somebody's performance wasn't great and you're giving them the opportunity to perform better and you want to reduce their salary, then ultimately you'd have to consult with the employee um, and get their consent. Otherwise, they could put a breach of contract claim in. And as I say, unlawful deductions as well. OK, thank you very much. Well, that draws today's questions to a close. We just had a comment come in from one of our listeners saying, thank you, lots of information, some great questions. And as Wendy says, it's the questions that make, that's where there's some real learning and it's where we put our guests on the spot. So thank you, everyone. Please join me in the chat of thanking uh, Wendy for her time and expertise today. It's been really interesting. Um, thank you. So just falls to me to say thank you very much for your attendance today. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this My HR Toolkit podcast. For further information and access to more of our business webinars and resources for SMEs, head over to myhrtoolkit.com or find us on LinkedIn and Twitter.